Hey, good morning. Welcome to New Life Community Church. I am so glad you're here today. Um, if you're looking at me today and you're wondering if I got my morning sweat on already, um, actually, this is much more glorious than that. In Midlothian, we had the opportunity to baptize four people today. Come on. And as we had four scheduled baptisms, two of them, Bill and Maria, were getting baptized and had invited their family to come and be there for it. And Bill's cousin ended up spontaneously saying, I need to give my life to Jesus Christ and got baptized as well. Five total people today were baptized. And I just want to say, this is something that we celebrate together, guys. I remember it's over a year ago now we prayed and said, man, God, we want to move. We want to reach this community for the sake of Jesus. What's it going to look like? And we prayed and we asked God to work and we said, we're going to need a leader. We're going to need a team. And God raised them up and we said, we're going to need a space. And we wondered, man, cheers. Could it be cheers? And God has worked. And when we see days like this, man, we got to stop and celebrate. We got to stop and celebrate. So I'm excited. Thank you guys for your faithfulness, for your prayers, for releasing. Thank you for loving and caring and giving and ministering. You guys have planted the seeds that have grown up into the faith response that we saw today. And I'm celebrating that. Can we just take a moment and just thank God? Can we can we pray together for these people? Come on. Lord, we thank you. We asked you answered. God, we thank you. We thank you that when we said this seems too big, too hard, too strange, God, can we follow you? God, will you work? And Lord, you did. God, I am thanking you for all five of those people who said yes to Jesus Christ. All five of those people who have taken not their last step, but their first step in this journey of faith to follow you. Jesus, thank you. We pray for the fruit that will come, the things that we haven't even seen yet, the seed that has been scattered. We thank you, God, for the faithfulness of those who have gone out and proclaimed the hope of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would continue to work. Lord, we thank you for the advancement of your kingdom. We thank you that you're a God who's still speaking, still reaching, still moving, still performing miracles. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I am very excited today, and I'm excited to be here with you guys. God's doing great things in our midst um, and there's something that I, I just wanted to kind of speak to as you guys look around the room. Um, maybe it's because of the hour off and we're going to have like 30 people who show up in an hour. Uh, that might be the thing. Um, but I know that one of the reasons why social engagements and things like churches gets a little bit rough is because of something you may or may not have heard about. It's called the coronavirus, right? And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge this and kind of speak this out as a church, understanding the difference between what it is and what it's not. There's a lot of things going on about it, and you probably you've heard of it, and, and some people are freaking out. Number one, what it's not. The coronavirus does not happen when you drink one too many Coronas. That's not what's going on. If you said, man, it's been months. I'm fine. It's months, months. It's Listen, that's not the way it works. That's not how it goes. Uh, also, some people have been terribly afraid that if you go out in social areas that this is going to be a real problem. People um, have kind of grown in fear around this issue. Um, but I, wanna, I, I just want to say this is not an airborne illness. What this means is that if somebody else has it in the room, you don't have to be afraid that just kind of being in the air, it's floating, sitting in the air. It doesn't work like that. 
Um, this is passed on through bodily fluids. Um, so basically, what you want to be thoughtful of is don't let anyone cough directly into your face. Uh, I know there's the desire to do that. Um, sneezing, coughing, that kind of thing, you just want to be thoughtful with. And so this is directly from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. I just want to give you a couple of tips that they give to everybody in, in how to deal with this. One, avoid close contact with people who are sick. So if they're sick and you know they're sick, don't get all up in their business. Like, let them be sick people. They're going through enough, man. Um, so don't be in close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. So probably the biggest factor in you getting sick is that you're going to be touching something else and that you'll touch your face. Don't do that. Stop touching your face. Um, stay home when you're sick. So this is kind of a thing. Some of you, you are the Sunday morning warriors, and God bless you. You're like, I know Andrew is looking for me, and if I don't show up, I'm going to be like, <coughs> I'm sick. And he's going to be like, no, you're not. <laughs> Listen, you don't have to worry about it this time. If you're sick, go ahead, stay home. It's fine. Look out for the safety of others. If you're sick, stay home and recover. Don't spread it around. That's fine. Um, cover your cough or sneeze with a the tissue, then throw the tissue in the trash. If you don't carry tissues with you, we all know the vampire sneeze, right, directly into your elbow. Um, that's fine. Things like this that just kind of are a little bit more thoughtful. If you have to sneeze, don't do that thing where you go <gasps> and just let it go into your neighbor. That's not a nice way to treat people. Don't do that. Um, clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces using a regular household cleaning spray or wipe doorknobs, things like that. Uh, wash your hands with soap and water for about 20 seconds. And, and this, is, this is probably the best way that you're going to help prevent things is just making sure you keep your hands clean. And if you're wondering, how long should I wash my hands for? Well, I just want you to think about it this way. If you had been cooking with jalapenos and you were about to change your contact lens, wash your hands like that. And here's a pro tip. You should probably wash your hands even when there isn't a global virus panic. That's just probably you something you should be thoughtful of. Uh, wash your hands. Now, the reason why I bring something up like this at church is because this is a social gathering, and I just want to be intentional in kind of naming it for what it is. We're going to be intentional in making sure we keep things clean. Wash your hands. This is important for our children's stuff. They're germ carriers a lot of times, so we've got hand sanitizer all over the place. Sanitize up, man. Sanitize up. Our children's workers are already doing this. We're trying to be as intentional and thoughtful as possible. We're providing a clean and healthy atmosphere and environment for you guys because we care about you. But here's the thing. We want to be wise in the way that we engage about this because these kinds of things have a way of getting in our system through fear and perpetuating a system of, of dispersal and actually isolation and loneliness. And so what can tend to happen is you can get afraid of all the possible what-ifs. And what happens is the idea of having a church, a place where you are committed to a, uh, a group of people in helping to encourage them, flourish in life, and follow Jesus, gets compromised. It becomes secondary. I've known other places throughout the world that have kind of looked at this and said, hey, we're going to cancel church services. Some places that have said we're going to live stream it, stay at home, watch church on TV. That's not the kind of response we want to have. We want to be the kind of people who engage with each other but do it thoughtfully. Okay, This isn't just kind of throwing caution to the wind, but this is us intentionally saying we're taking a stand for Jesus 
and we're going to continue to gather and preach the word of God. And we're going to continue to trust in Jesus because the coronavirus does not determine my destiny, but Jesus does. And so I want to continue to follow Jesus and honor Jesus. That said, there is no shame if you start feeling sick and you're like, hey, precautionary side, I want to stay at home. That's fine. Uh, If you start doing this thing where you're like, hey, I still want to be family, but maybe we're the family that fist bumps now. Uh, that's okay. If you want to fist bump each other, if somebody comes up to me and passes me an elbow like this, I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to be like, hi, one, right? Like that's, it's, it's fine, but we're figuring out how to acclimate to this so that we can continue to march forward as a family in love. Does that make sense? So we're going to continue to be wise about this. I just wanted to name it as we continue to pray for peace in the midst of fear, to continue to pray for safety, health, and healing. Many people have contracted this over 100,000. I just want to be clear that of the people, uh, there are over half of them that have already come through on the other side, totally healthy, totally fine. There have been a number of deaths. This is real. And with any kind of sickness, there's a possibility. But these percentages are, are much, much lower, less than 3%. And so Basically, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we understand this is something to navigate, but we want to do it well in love, keeping Jesus in front of our eyes. Let that be the thing that impacts the way you see the world. And this is important because there's a lot of, again, wrong ideas that can go on that can kind of change the way we think, which can change the way we live and act. And so this is kind of a timely series that we're talking about, Jesus Verified, that we're trying to engage with the Jesus who is and not the Jesus who we've kind of envisioned him to be, not the wrong notion of Jesus. Some of us, we've had Jesus represented to us in a myriad of ways. Some of us by family members or friends or televangelists. And Jesus is the guy that's willing to heal you as long as you pay him thousands of dollars. Or Jesus is the guy that's willing to pray for you as long as you pay him to do that. And we get these wrong ideas about what Jesus was like, and they start to fashion our faith. They start to shape how we believe and understand. And so we want to go back to the Bible and say, yeah, but who is Jesus really? Do I know that Jesus? Do I know the Jesus who is and who exists? And so some of you know this already if you're on social media. Um, There's a couple of different ways to set up an account, and there's lots of people who actually have fairly similar names. And for famous people, this gets to be a little bit problematic. Uh, Chris Pratt had fairly recently put out a uh, alert. He called it his pervy dude alert. And he says, this is not a joke. It's confirmed somebody is trying to pretend to be me on Facebook and maybe other social media platforms, apparently hitting on a lot of different female fans, trying to get their numbers, and who knows what else. I'm not joking. And so he's saying this, and the whole deal is he's saying, listen, it's not me. Somebody else is pretending to be me, is representing me, is acting like they're me, and they're doing this in a wrong way. And so the way you check and see on uh, social media if this is really the real person or not is that there's this little check mark if we have it here. Go ahead. Keep going. This little blue check mark right there, that check mark is the authenticity check mark that they have. It is the blue verified badge on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram that lets people know that an account of public interest is authentic. They had to check into that. And essentially what that check mark says is this is the real deal. If you want to know what Chris Pratt is saying, you have to go to the real Chris Pratt. If you want to know what Jesus is saying, you're going to have to go to the real Jesus. 
And so what we want to do is we want to bring ourselves to the word of God and say, who is this Jesus really? How do we understand him? And how does a right understanding of Jesus change the way I think about God? And so last week we talked about this in terms of Jesus being God, Jesus being deity, the way that we understand him being God. It shapes the way we understand God. It shapes our faith. Today we're talking about understanding Jesus as being fully human. We have this theological word that's really helpful for understanding what happened when God put on flesh and became man. This word is incarnation. Somebody say incarnation. I don't know if you've used this word much before or understand it very well, um, but it's a fairly popular one in most Christian circles. Incarnation is the idea that God, deity, put on flesh and became man. And so there's been a lot of misconceptions about this and how it works. And we say, okay, Jesus is man. Jesus is God. How does the duality of this thing work? And there's been a lot of um, heresies that had come out in the early first kind of 300 years or so uh, of the Christian faith. And so some of these wrong notions were that, hey, maybe Jesus was just a man, and then he was such a good man that he became God. And that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. You don't get brownie points for being a good person, and then God's like, congratulations, you're God now. It's, it's, there's no sweepstakes. There's nothing. That's not how it works. The Bible is not affirming that Jesus was good and then became God. Some had stated, well, maybe Jesus was born a man, but then the spirit of God indwelt him. And so the spirit of God made him the son of God. And it was God and man at the same time. But it's like man was the shell and God was the interior portion. This is also heresy. So the trick of it is understanding um, what is called perhaps a, a less frequently used term, the hypostatic union. And this is to understand that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. And in the Chalcedon Creed of 451 AD, they said essentially Jesus has two natures. He is God and he is man. Each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. Each nature remains distinct. Christ is only one person. There is not Christ the man and Christ the God, Jesus the man, Jesus the God. No, no, he's only one person. And things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Now, unpacking that a little bit, what they're saying is the things that are true about God, if you say God is all-knowing, is Jesus. Yes. God is all-powerful, is Jesus. Yes. God is Good in his nature, morally virtuous, is Jesus. Yes. God is perfect in a way that no other being, which is created, will ever understand perfection. Is Jesus perfect in this way? Yes. God is holy and completely holy. Is Jesus? Yes. And you go, okay, I get it how it works from God to man. What about the things that are true about man? Man bleeds. Did Jesus bleed? Yes. Man's bones can be broken. Could Jesus' bones be broken? They could. Did Jesus experience pain? Maybe in his perfection he didn't experience that. No, what is true of a human is true of Jesus. He is totally man and totally God. Jesus is human. Oliver Crisp said this, In the incarnation, God the Son stoops down 
to gather up our humanity, becoming one of us so that he may reconcile us to God. He takes up our humanity in addition to his divinity. He unites what makes us human to what makes him divine. And so essentially what's going on here is in the work of God engaging with human beings, what he has done is he has taken the mystery of his identity and he has made it known. Imagine if you were a parent, right? And you tried to explain what love is to your four-year-old child. Uh, most of us have done this in some capacity, and, and they'll even say it back to you, right? You're, you're a kid. I've got a, four, a five-year-old daughter right now, and, and it's, it's so beautiful when I say, I love you, sweetheart, and she'll say, I love you, daddy. And I just love it. She wraps her arms around me, and usually when she says, I love you, it also encompasses a hug. So what is love? Well, it has to do with hugging. And we know some people I want to hug and some people I don't. And that has to do with love. And so there's a stranger. Do you want to hug them? No. Why would I do that? I don't love them. Daddy, I love you, though. You get a hug and a kiss. And we go, okay, we're starting to figure out some of the pieces. But if you said, you know what, hugging and kissing and generally nice feelings are, are all that love is, you wouldn't begin to understand a marriage because of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so there's things that happen that we're like, I, I don't really get it. And then once you get married, you're like, oh, oh, this is interesting. And then you watch a couple who's engaged, who's telling each other, I love you, right? And, and it starts off earlier than that, like middle school. Have you ever seen a middle school couple where they told each other, I love you? Oh, some people are like, that's adorable. I'm like, gag reflex. Like, it is not a good situation for me. I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're crazy. You don't love each other. Like, I give it like four days. This isn't going anywhere. I'm sorry, guys. You don't, this isn't love. And then high school, and it kind of, you know, I love you. We're going to be together forever. And then next semester, you're like, actually, I think I want to be with her forever. And it's just like, it's like this weird convoluted thing. And then college, and you're getting closer. And then you get engaged, and you're like, I love you. And you're like, I know it, and I'm going to be with you forever. And then you're married for the first year, and you're like, well, not forever, forever, right? And then you, you get through that, though. You get through the first couple of years. And then what happens is you begin to realize in marriage that love is work and love is hard and love is sacrifice and love is pain and it's patience and it's grace and it's caring for other people more than you care about yourself. And, and there's this thing of love that starts to dawn on you that you never understood before when you didn't experience it. And the same is true of God. You see, God revealed himself to us in his word, and he said, this is who I am. And we read the words, and we went, okay, I think I get it. He's like, I'm not sure you do. <laughs> and we wrestled, and we struggled, and we tried to understand God, and he says, I'm going to get closer. I want, I want you to know this relationally. I want you to experience it. And so when Jesus comes into the human condition, he does it in this unique way where we start to see God differently than we ever saw God before. Because now we're like, wait a minute, if Jesus is God and I see Jesus and I see how he's acting, how he's thinking, what he's like, how he's behaving, what he's going through, like, does that mean that God's like that? And God's like, yeah. It's kind of this view, if we could tweak the analogy just a little bit, like when you're young, you look at your parents and you're like, my parents have it all figured out. And then you get to be like 30 and you're like, oh man, my parents had no idea what they were doing. And I know that because now I'm a parent and I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And we're like, wait a minute, hold on, what's going on here? And we kind of have this view of God where we're like, God's like this. And then when Jesus gets close to us, we go, 
maybe my view of God was wrong. This is one of the best gifts of humanity is that Jesus brings God near in Jesus. God comes right into our presence. He puts on flesh and he says, let me show you who I am. And this is very purposeful and intentional. The whole reason for this is to redeem humans. It's the problem of brokenness and sin. And God says, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to deal with that. And to do that, I need to get into it. I need to go into the dirty places, the dark places, the hard places. I'm going to put on flesh and I'm going to get close enough to love. And in John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. Colossians 2 9 for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form This is literally what's going on all that is God God in human flesh Philippians 2 6 through 7 though. He was God Speaking of Jesus. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to Instead, he gave up his divine privileges He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being if you continue on into verse eight and it says, and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. This whole passage is about humility, this uniquely godlike attribute that what he actually does is it says he didn't think of equality with God as something to be held on to, essentially, that when Jesus came and put on flesh. He changed the way he expected to be treated all throughout the Old Testament We get this picture of the God who is holy and glorious and he is revered And even Moses when he goes to meet with God on the holy mountain He comes back and he's shining the people can't look at him. They're like Moses your face is glowing put on a veil Because to be around God is this essentially holy and other thing and and God is so holy in fact that we're told that there are angels whose job it is simply to encircle God and to say, holy, holy, holy. That's all they do day and night. Holy, holy, holy. God is eternally worshipped, eternally praised, eternally exclaimed of his greatness. Eternally, God is is rightly focused on as the center of all that exists. This is God's perpetual state. And when Jesus comes and puts on flesh, he doesn't do so saying, worship me, bow before me, give me everything you have. He doesn't just start taking things from people saying, well, it's mine anyway, I made it. He doesn't get mad at people who don't instantly fall on their face. Jesus is not some diva ruler simply looking to grab your attention and say, how dare you for one moment lose sight of who I am? Instead, God, who is deserving of all that we could give him, he puts on flesh and he abandons all pretense and all expectation of our response. In fact, he, he comes to us in the most unassuming way. He comes to us formed in the womb of a woman where he spends nine months and then is born, is held on to like a child, is cared for. Grows up, lives a whole full life, lives largely poor. The Bible would tell us Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He was constantly without things. He sent the disciples out with nothing, not even a change of clothes. And they're like, all right, well, here we go. 
And in this place, Jesus didn't say, hey, you got to treat me better than this. Don't you know I'm God? Because his whole purpose was to come close and to redeem. This is the humility of Christ, the incarnation, 100% God and 100% human. And so I just want to walk you through this because, again, I, I, I think we lose sight of who Jesus is and, and who the Bible says he is. So I, I just want us to get it. Some things that are uniquely human that we maybe think that, that God just doesn't experience, right? Like if I told you I've been depressed before, you'd say, well, yeah, Andrew, you're only human. And if I say, guys, I've been really angry, like I wish I wouldn't have been angry. And you say, well, yeah, Andrew, you're only human. And if I, if, if I began to tell you about my attributes and my nature and my character, and sometimes I cry and sometimes I laugh and sometimes I laugh at inappropriate times, you know, and like sometimes I laugh so hard that milk flies out of my nose. And you're like, well, yeah, Andrew, that's like a human thing. But if I said, hey, do you think Jesus ever laughed so hard that milk flew out of his nose? You'd be like, that's Jesus. Man, you can't talk about Jesus like that. And what we end up doing is we end up picturing this version of Jesus who is somehow so distinctly different than any other human that you've ever met that we can't really relate to him. We, we can't really get to him. He seems distant. And that was not the purpose of God. And that's not the way that the Bible describes him. And so um, I'm not going to ask you to follow along in Scripture. In fact, I'm going to put these up on the board. And if you want to write the verses down, if you're a note taker and you're like, I have to do it, go ahead. But I'm not even going to read the verses. I just want you to know it's grounded there. And I want you to hear what the Bible has to say and, and, and kind of just understand conceptually this is what it's talking about with Jesus. So we'll start off with this. He was born. He was born. And this is such an interesting and perhaps obvious thing to say. But throughout the Old Testament, we have what is called a Christophany or a theophany, this place where, where God comes, where, where Christ comes, and he gives this foreshadowing of himself in a human form. And so we see in the book of Genesis where God wrestles with Jacob and he puts on this human flesh. But we're not to believe at that point in time that what God did was that God became a baby, grew up and then wrestled Jacob. But he just for a moment took on a specific form. And this is kind of how it's treated throughout the Old Testament, not a sense of this person has grown up and been young. And so in the incarnation, we see something absolutely unique. We see God coming vulnerable. We see him being willing to form relationship with us in this utterly dependent way. And I remember what that's like because I've had kids and some of you have too. And I remember uh, when my first son was born. And this is a really funny picture. Don't give me grief about this because I know I didn't give birth to this child and I'm sitting there in a bed. But I was in the hospital for five days. For five days, there were some complications. And they told me at one point in time, they said, hey, if you want to, you can go home, you can get some rest and come back. And I said, can I take my son? And they said, no, he has to stay. I said, I'm not going anywhere. And for five days, I stayed at the hospital, and I remember, and I just felt like this is my son, and it's my job to take care of him, and there's nothing else that matters in all of life but this. I'm taking care of this kid. And man, that kid, he drove me crazy. He kept me up all hours of the night, and I remember, like, with no sleep, Allison would, like, kick me because she could hear he was crying, and I was, like, passed out, and she would kick me, and I would get up out of bed, like, still half asleep, and I would pick him up, and I'd bring him over to her, and she'd nurse him, and then she'd kick me again, and I'd get back up, and I'd bring him over to the thing, and I'd put him back. 
And the whole time I was like mostly asleep because I was dying, man. And this kid threw up on me. One of my favorite pictures, and I don't have it here today, is the time I was wearing a hoodie and I was burping him and he threw up and I was just like, "Uh uh-oh. And Allison's like, what? I don't see anything. And I was like, yeah, I know. Completely down my shirt. Like everything. I was wearing a hoodie and he lit, he perfectly just right down, all the way just dripping down. And I'm like, oh, kid. Oh, kid. I changed an endless number of diapers. We fed him. We, we bathed him. We took care of him. That's how Jesus came. He came in a way that a mother and a father and a family surrounded him and came around him and changed his diapers and cleaned him up and, and gave him something to eat. He nursed. And he was utterly dependent. And this is such a bizarre thing to think of God as coming in such a vulnerable way and saying, hey, listen, I want closeness, and so I'll go first. I'll come naked, right? I'll come awkward. <laughs> I'll come needy. I'll come a little bit dependent on you, and you're going to have to feed me and take care of me, and this is going to form this bond because I want you to know what I'm going to be doing for you forever. And there's this closeness and this tenderness that's forged and formed. He was born. He also grew up. He got older. He got bigger. He went through awkward stages. He probably had knobby knees and zits and like his voice changed. Do you ever think about Jesus being like, hey, guys, like totally human. He grew up. And at one point in time, you probably looked at him. and You're like, Jesus, you look like you're 90 pounds soaking wet. You need some meat on those bones. Right. I mean, Jesus, he grew up. He got muscular. I wonder if he went to a well and just one time looked and went like. You know, like it's getting bigger, like, I don't know, like, but he grew up, he got older and, and things developed and changed in Jesus. He learned to speak. I guarantee he did not come out of the womb and be like, hi, mom, you know, let me tell you what God's like. Like he grew up, he developed. He got tired. He got tired, guys. He got tired like I'm tired right now. At 1230 last night, I was kind of preparing for all of this and just getting things ready, 1230 at night. And I was going to stop at 1130, but I kept going because I was like, no, it's fine. It's daylight savings tomorrow, and I'm going to get an extra hour of sleep. And then I woke up this morning, and I went, no, it's the other one. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I did. And so I got three and a half hours of sleep last night, and I'm like, I am so tired. And I had to drag myself out of bed and come on at five in the morning, which is really sort of four in the morning. And, and you know, I was just tired. And you're like, hey, I got to go through it. And we've been there, right? You've been through seasons where you're like, I'm underslept. I'm underrested. I'm tired. I just, I'm struggling. Does Jesus know what that's like? He does. Jesus got tired, John 4, 6. He got tired. He needed to sit down. He needed to rest. He feels you, man. If you've been so tired and you're just like, I just don't know if I can do it anymore. Jesus felt like that. Jesus got thirsty. He got like bone dry thirsty, like doing hard labor. He was a carpenter in the middle of the desert, guys. He got thirsty. He had times when his throat went like, oh, man, I need something. He was out in the wilderness for 40 days with no food or water. You think he didn't get thirsty? You think his lips didn't get all like crusty? Like he, he knew what it was to want things and be like, man, I'm struggling. John 19, he had a job. This guy worked hard. He learned to trade. He had to figure out how it worked. He got annoyed. Now, this is a funny thing. We really think like, man, Jesus probably like, like we've dealt with annoying people before. And like the first time you see him, you know, they're kind of the EGR. 
Extra grace required. And you kind of see him and you're wrestling with this. And you're like, hey, man, I really need to, to navigate this extra grace required. And, and the first time you see him, you're OK. And the second time you're all right. And then the third time you're like, man, just stop. You're so annoying. And you're like, you feel bad. And you think to yourself, oh, man, I bet Jesus never got this way. Mark 10, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That means annoyed and angry. Like Jesus, there were things that got under Jesus skin. There were things that bothered him. Sometimes Jesus got lonely. Sometimes he just needed to be alone. If you felt that way, he has too. It says in Luke 4 that he was tempted. That he was offered things that he wanted and he knew it would be a compromise to go after them, but he felt it and he was tempted. If you've ever wondered, man, does Jesus know what it's like to be surrounded by these kinds of things? To constantly be at war within yourself and to struggle to try and choose the right thing. Yeah, Jesus knew what that was like. He was tempted. And Jesus cried. He wept. He felt things. And for some of us, we're like, yeah, I'm sure he, he got a little sad. Man, Jesus, it says he wept. Like, this isn't like the, the movie star single tear slowly falling down, right? Like, this is ugly crying. Jesus ugly cried. Jesus got scared. Matthew 26. He's looking at what's coming and he's saying, that doesn't look good. I don't want to do it. You ever felt that way? Jesus has. He got deeply emotional and this is kind of important. Like I said, sometimes I think we think of Jesus as like, you know, he probably got angry sometimes, but he never got angry like I've seen some angry people. He never got like that. I bet Jesus got sad sometimes, but I never got, I, I bet he never got really sad. Like Jesus, he's just perfect and he's good and he's got it all figured out. In Matthew 26, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If you felt like that before and you felt like, man, I'm just overwhelmed with sorrow and I don't know if I can take it anymore. If you've wrestled and you've struggled and you say, did God get that? Does he understand? In the person of Jesus, we find out, yeah, yeah, he does. He was misunderstood. People didn't, people didn't get it. People thought different things about Jesus. He says, hey, who do people say I am? And they had like, oh, you're this and you're this and you're this and you're this. And he's like, man, I probably shouldn't have asked. People misunderstood. People got it wrong. People thought he was different things. And Jesus was used. He was taken advantage of for what he could provide. Jesus had this way of doing miracles and people got fed who were hungry. And they started to follow him because of the whole bread and fish thing. And, and he was like, hey, man, do you even like care about me? Or are you just like hungry? Right. And you guys have felt that way before. Right. That someone was just taking advantage of you. Like you just hang out with me because of what you can get. Like I'm, I'm sort of grateful because I was kind of an awkward teenager. And growing up, um, my dad and my mom were like kind of thoughtful of us having like the cool house, um, you know, so that friends would want to come over. And I didn't find this out till later on, but I definitely had like two really close friends to me right now. And they were like, oh, yeah, man, we just kind of hung out with you because you had a pool. And I was like, uh, thanks. He's like, no, it's cool. You're good with us now. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, you know, it's like 20 years later. Like, I hope I'm good with you. Now. Like, it's just weird. That feeling of like, man, do you really like me or are you just like getting something from me? If you've ever felt that way, man, it happened to Jesus. He would infuriate people. Jesus made people angry. If you're like, man, 
Some days I feel like I just bug people. I wonder if Jesus ever knew what that was like. Yeah, he did, man. Jesus made people angry, so mad, in fact, that they wanted to kill him. Luke chapter 4, all the people in the synagogue, they were furious when they heard Jesus talk. Jesus made people upset. Jesus was falsely accused. He had people say that he was only able to do his miraculous work because he was demon-possessed. He was falsely accused. He was denied by his friends. Peter said, I don't know that guy. He was abandoned by the people who were closest to him. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He was attacked. If you've been hurt or had violence done against you, man, how can an all-powerful God understand that? Jesus was attacked. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was mocked and insulted. People slapped, punched, berated, thrust a crown because they said, if you're a king, you need a crown. They put thorns on his head and pressed him in until he bled. He was whipped, abused, and he died. He didn't sort of die, kind of die. He wasn't mostly dead. He died. Jesus was human. And I think if we could understand it, if we could get it, if we could grasp it, we begin to understand something about the love of God that's so absolutely ridiculous. That God who is everlasting, totally perfect, completely good, that he would ever step into humanity and experience that. You'd be like, you've got to be crazy. Why would you do that? Why, what, what, what would possibly compel you, God, to do that? Like, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. We don't get it. We don't understand it. There's three things that I want us to walk away with this kind of understanding. And the first is this. It's just really, really simple. Whatever you've gone through, whatever you've experienced, whatever you've kind of suffered in this world, if you've ever looked at God and said, you know what, God, you couldn't possibly get it. You couldn't possibly know it. A big part of God coming in in the flesh, one portion of this is just that he understands. He gets it. He comprehends it. He's experienced it. He's been around it. He's tasted it. He's felt it. He's seen it. This is a really big part of Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Now, here's the trick. He's saying there's going to be times when you begin to look at your life and you begin to be so frustrated by how continuously you fall short, by how many times you absolutely blow it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in the place where you feel like you failed and you had to say, God, I'm sorry. And then you say, God, I'm sorry. And then you say, God, I'm sorry. And then you get into that place where you feel like you're coming back so much you don't even want to pray anymore. You don't even want to talk to God because you're like, man, I've just been here so many times. And you kind of come to God throwing up your hands in the air like, God, you know, I'm, I'd say I'm sorry, but the truth is I'm probably going to mess up again tomorrow. 
I'm probably going to screw this thing up again next week. God, I'm so frustrated with myself. You probably don't even care anymore. I've talked to people before who have told me, like, I don't pray. I don't have a relationship with God. I don't even talk to God anymore because I tried and I couldn't do it. And God's got to be sick of me by now. And literally what he's saying is he says, hold on. He says, hold on. Press in. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? Because we don't have a high priest who doesn't get it. We have one in Jesus who knows the struggle, who's been tempted like we've been tempted, who's struggled, who knows our weaknesses, who's walked with us through our story and has tasted and felt it himself. And he says, because of that, you can come to the throne of grace. He says, you can come here to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what he's saying. You're struggling. Come. You're hurting. Come. You're weak. You're broken. You blew it. You screwed up for the 150 millionth time. Come on. And he doesn't just say come. He says come with confidence. Come with understanding. Come with comprehension. Come getting it that Jesus has been there. And when you're like, I don't like how I am, Jesus. He doesn't say, I don't like how you are either. He just says, I get it. We're like, God, I feel broken. He says, I see your brokenness. I know. Come on. Come find help. Come find grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because he gets it. He understands it. And that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean when we do evil that he's like, oh, it's fine. You know, you're, you're broken. What else are you going to do but stab that guy? I mean, come on. Like, it's not that. It's not like you get a free pass. It's not like, well, yeah, sure, you're manipulative, but your parents were way more manipulative than you are. You know, steps in the right direction. It's not a free pass. But he does say, I understand it. I know it. And I still want you. Come close. Come with confidence and find grace. He understands. Secondly, and this is kind of like weird and hard for us to grab our, our, our head around, but he shows us a better way to live. Actually, what he's doing is he's kind of redeeming humanity. He's kind of showing us like this is what you could be. And this is a hard thing because I think all of us are essentially asking this question. How should I be? What should I be like? What, what is it that should be me? And this is a hard thing. And I've I've come to grips with this and and. You know, I've talked to my dad about this, and I felt like growing up as a kid, I kind of looked to my dad like, show me how to be a man. And I really felt like he was kind of standoffish and wouldn't do it. And I was like, show me. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be? And he wouldn't show me. And I, I kind of interpreted that as distance. And now later on in our life, we've had these conversations, and I find out about his life and kind of what he grew up with and how, like, by the time he was 12 years old, he was mostly taking care of himself at 16, completely out on his own. And this is the way he figured it out himself. There were so many lessons that he had to learn the hard way, but they formed him and forged him. And I talked to him later and I said, Dad, sometimes I felt you were kind of distant and like you wouldn't tell me just this is how you should be. And he says it was intentional. I, I wanted you to, to grapple with it and struggle with it. And I wanted you to find your way. And I thought about that and I thought, man. The same struggle that he had, the struggle brought him towards something, the struggle he wanted it to bring me into something as well. And I realized that it's not just me. Like, I thought I was unique. Like, I'm the only one who struggles with this. I think everybody does. 
And I think we perpetuate this story. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to follow me. I want you to get it. I want you to walk in it. I want you to understand, like, this is how it could be. Your life could look like this. Humanity could be different. So a big piece of the incarnation is he's showing us a better way to live. Come and live like Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, we know that we have come to know him, God, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. In other words, if you're like, hey, yeah, I know God, we're close. Just don't do anything he says. You're a liar. You don't know God. But if any person obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we're in God. Whoever claims to live in him must live. Hear this as Jesus did. In other words, Jesus is setting the example. He's saying, hey, come live like me. He's giving us an example of a better way of life. He says, you know what? You've learned how to love the people who love you and hate the people who don't. I tell you, love the ones that hate you. He says, you know what? You've learned how to hold grudges against people who wrong you. I tell you, forgive and forgive wildly. You've heard forgive three times. I tell you, seven times, 77 times. Forgive and don't stop forgiving. Grace. He tells us forgive in the way you want to be forgiven. He says, I want you to love other people. How do I love my neighbor? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan who loves the person who hates him and takes care of him on the road. He says, be like that. And then Jesus lives it out. It's not just a story with Jesus. He says, come and be like me. And here's the impossibility. It's through Christ he makes it possible. Because of Jesus, we can live different. We can be different. We don't have to fall into the same old feedback loops we're in time and time again. We don't have to perpetuate the evils that we experience. We can be free from that. And lastly and most importantly... The reason for the humanity of Jesus, the reason that God comes close is that he restores us and brings us back home to God. First Peter 3.18 says this just super clearly. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. This is the purpose. This is why he came. This is what he's doing. He says, I'm going to draw you back in. You who are far away. I'm not just going to wait and say, hey, you come to me if you want help. Just come here. Just come on. You can come to me. I'll help you. Just come first. He says, no, no, I'm going to go to where you are. He's the kind of friend that doesn't say, oh, yeah, you need help. Just come over here and I'll help you. He says, wait, give me 10 minutes. I'll be right over. He's the kind of friend that says, I'll come to where you are. I'll meet you where you're at. And I'm going to bring you home. I'll pick you up. John Calvin says it this way. He says, this is the wonderful exchange. Which out of his merciless benevolence he has made with us that becoming son of man with us he has made us sons of god with him that by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us that by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us that accepting our weakness he has strengthened us by his power that receiving our poverty upon himself He has transferred his wealth to us that taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself. He has clothed us with his righteousness. In Romans 10, he says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. He is saying you can make this exchange. You can trade the old life for the new. You can come and know Jesus. And today I want to give you that opportunity to respond to the Lord, to respond to the humanity of Jesus Christ, to respond to Christ coming presently, coming close, coming so that you could know him tangibly. You see the Christ who came near in humanity at one point in time in human history is continuing to come close and pursuing you even now. And I believe that if you're here, it's not by accident and that there might even be some stories here that are just waiting on the verge of being transformed. You've believed things about Jesus your whole life, but you've never known this Jesus. You've never understood him this way. Today, I'd like to give you the chance to respond to him. I want to ask you to stand. Will you stand with me? Go ahead and close your eyes in prayer, and we're just going to pray. Father God, we long to know you. We long to be close to you. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who has come into this world to redeem us and to draw us home. And so, God, if that's an invitation, I want to take you up on it. God, if that's an invitation, that I want Jesus to come and restore me, to forgive me. I believe that Jesus is the son of the living God. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he traded out his life for my life. So today, Jesus, I want to ask you to be my Lord. I want to ask you to be my Savior. I want to ask you to be the one who rules my life. Today, Jesus, I want to follow you in your way. I want to live my life the way you lived yours. Today, Jesus, I want to follow you. If we could, just take a moment just to do a little inventory, just to search your own heart. If there's anything that's distancing you and God, take a moment now to just confess it and say, God, forgive me. If there's any sin, just take this moment and say, God, search my heart, bring it up, and let's get it dealt with. And while you're doing that, while everyone is dealing with that, if there's anybody here, eyes still closed, heads still bowed, if there's anybody here and you're saying today, I need to trust Jesus. Today, Jesus needs to be my Lord. If that's you, I just want to ask you, just raise your hand. It's just for me so I can see you. I see you. But you say today is the day. Listen, this is not the last step I want you to take. This begins a journey of you following Jesus. But I need you to know this. If you raise your hand and you say, I need Jesus, then today I want you to know that Jesus is for you. He's been pursuing you already and he's drawn you to this moment. God, to those who have raised their hands, I pray that you would draw them into your kingdom and into your family by the confession of faith, not some magical words that are uttered, but by the laying down of our will, we confess we have need of you, Lord. Will you meet with us here in this place? Will you draw us into this new life, this new journey? Will you bring us into the family of God? We confess our sins. We ask your forgiveness. We pray that on the basis of Christ's death for my sins, my profession of faith in Jesus is Lord, that you would save my soul. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if we could do this real quick, real quick. In a moment, we're going to take communion. In a moment, we're going to take communion. But I want you to know God loves you. As we take communion, 